0: Nehemiah 13, 23 through 31. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jeho- Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Heronite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all on a holiday weekend. Um, those of you that are Bronco fans, it's good to have you in the room. You can kind of settle down after all those cuts yesterday. <laughs> so, anyway, um, I can tell those of you that are following. Um, anyhow, um, we've got a lot coming up. To, uh, Happy Labor Day weekend, by the way. Um, next, this is the last sermon in the series on reliving the glory days. Um, this sermon is particular sermon is, is titled The Loneliness of Leadership. Um, next week, we're going to start a brand new series uh, through selected psalms. Um, that's going to be an interesting series. We're totally, totally stealing the title that John Calvin gave to the Psalms called the anatomy of the soul, and the application of that particular series is going to really be to help help us understand what's going on in our culture um, with the alt-right and what you have with the social justice warriors. You have people on both ends of the spectrum in our culture that really don't understand themselves very well. They don't understand the power of what's going on emotionally inside of us. And I think it's going to be a fascinating series. Um, so just a little teaser on that one. Um, again, it's good to have, have you with us today for this last series. Um, throughout this series, we've been looking at the, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah um, because it tells the story of a bunch of Babylonian exiles that after several years, they're, they're, there's three waves of them that are sent back to rebuild a whole entire culture, culture in Judah, um, and the city of Jerusalem in particular. Um, first, we looked at the account of Zerubbabel and what he did, and then we looked at Ezra, and then finally Nehemiah. We even took a glimpse at the book of Esther and how it had shortly preceded all of this. And so the reign of Esther as the queen of the Medo-Persia Empire. Mordecai, her, her first cousin, that was actually... Very similar in a, in a role, very similar to to Joseph in Egypt, and so that set the landscape for everything that we're seeing through these books. Um, what's interesting, I think, about these books when you now that we've come to the end of this study, is that they allow you to step back and see what is going on. I think in the in the minds and the hearts of many Christians, um, because you had a deep nostalgia in the in the in the minds and the hearts of the Jews that were going back to Jerusalem, they wanted to rebuild things the way they were. They wanted to recapture the glory of the former days that they knew before Jerusalem was sieged and taken captive. And there's a lot of Christians today that are lamenting the fact that we're in the place that we're in. And it's almost as if they're fighting to go back It's almost as if they're fighting to turn back the cultural clock so somehow we can go back to some of the civility and some of the normalcy that we used to know, uh, for those of you that are older, perhaps in the 70s and the 80s and even the 90s. But we can't do it. We're not going to be able to do it any more than they were able to do it. And so what you see in these two books is this deep nostalgia giving way to a new day in Jerusalem. I I don't know that there's a more challenging chapter in either book than this 13th and final chapter within the book of Nehemiah. Um, In this last chapter, what we see is a significant shift from what we considered last week. In chapters 9 through 12, there's an account that hardly mentions Nehemiah. There is so much initiative being taken by the people of Israel that they're beginning to bring about the renewal in Israel on their own, which is a remarkably encouraging tipping point of any leadership time because you have the people now owning the vision themselves, taking the initiative to implement changes and bring about restoration on their own. And it had to be a remarkably encouraging time. This chapter starts after a year of absence, where Nehemiah has gone back to Persia, Um, He comes back, and the people had slipped back into many of the patterns that they were in before Ezra even got there. And all the progress they made is now being spoiled and forfeited. And oftentimes what people do when they read this 13th chapter, they read it, and I I remember several years ago when Mark Driscoll preached through this particular, particular book, what stands out is Ezra's temper. You, we just heard the verses where Ezra literally is holding people down on the ground and pulling hair from their beards and their head. Um, he just goes ballistic. Uh, Driscoll put on, Driscoll, the, the moniker that he used, he said, you know, that's going Old Testament. Um, and I, I think it's true. That's, that's a, valid, a valid aspect of this particular chapter because you see it over and over again. But I don't think this is about his temper. Uh, he had a temper. And... That temper factored heavily into the events that we're going to see in this chapter. But I think what this chapter is about is his loneliness. Uh, I, I think as a leader, um, in, uh, leadership is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because some of you would consider yourself leaders because you started your own companies. Some of you would consider yourself leaders because you've been promoted to a position of management over a lot of people. Several, some of you might have even several hundreds of people underneath you. Um, but leadership can be su- more subtle than that. Leadership can be a single parent where you're the one that's expected to make all the decisions. You're the one that has to rain on everybody's parade when everybody wants to eat ice cream before dinner. And you have to say, no, let's wait till later. You're the one that has to decide the days that you go to the zoo and the days that, that you make somebody to go to school when they're complaining that they're too sick to go. You, you see, there's something about leadership that is isolating. There's a loneliness to it. And I think that this chapter captures it because everything that was being spoiled in Jerusalem Nehemiah has to go back. And there's some irony in this because most scholars believe that Ezra was still alive. And when Nehemiah goes back and sees all of this decline, if I was Nehemiah, I I would have been unbelievably upset that Ezra let it happen. There's no evidence that Ezra was standing against what was going on. And he's alone. He's imperially alone and trying to assess and apply direction and correction to all that's going on. He's entirely alone. And I think every single one of us should be able to relate to that to some degree. Um, I want to read you a quote that captures this, I think, quite well. It's from Michael Gerber, uh, an article that he wrote in, in Inc. magazine that was titled, How to Cope with the Loneliness of Leadership. And he describes both the, just the basic challenges of leadership, but particularly this aspect of loneliness, and I think in a, a remarkably lucid way. Here's what he says. He says, The first practice of an enterprise leader is learning how to live with being alone, learning how to accept the hollow reality of it, the tiny sound of your own voice in your self-induced vacuum, the sound of your voice when you know you have no idea what you're saying, when you have absolutely no idea whether or not the decision you're making is correct, is this the right decision, you ask yourself? Am I about to do something incredibly stupid? At this point, the feeling of loneliness is made worse because some part of you knows that there are probably people who are thinking how very stupid, how inept, how unleader-like you are. But leaders are always willing to risk making fools of themselves the willingness to risk how they look is one of those defining characteristics that makes them leaders that separates the true leaders from the rest of us man that is an amazing statement that's amazing insight into what leadership is really like for those that have ever been a part of a major project you know what it's like to know you're doing your best to make a decision, and you know it's quite possible that it could be wrong, but there's nothing else you can do. No decision is the worst decision, and so you press on. This issue of leadership is remarkably important, I think. Um, now, going back to this context, I think it's, it's really interesting because at this point, Nehemiah has spent 12 years as the governor of, of Israel, this providence that the king of Persia has put him in charge of, and that was between the years of BC, 444 to 432. And he had this occasion for a year to go back to the Persian king. We don't know why. There's no record or evidence of what exactly sent him back. It might have been just a common visit. Um, He might have been corresponding with the king and trying to figure out what to do in the, in the region, we, we, we simply don't know. But what we do know is that after a year, he comes back and it's all unraveled. And he is the one that is standing by himself to fix it. There's not a lot of assistance that you see throughout this chapter. And this chapter ironically ends in this really, it, I was talking with James just earlier this morning, it ends a lot like the book of Jonah, it just like, Really? It ends like that? After 25 years, it's been 25 years since Ezra just went, had gone back. Ezra went 12 years before Hezekiah, 13 years before Hezekiah was there. So Hezekiah comes, reigns for 12 years. That puts you at 25, and then it's about 26 years. And everything that he had worked for is now falling apart. I think it's remarkable insight. Now, one of the things that I think I want you to look at before we jump into this is that it's somewhat telling of his loneliness and perhaps even a deep sense of insecurity that was at work within Nehemiah, that in addressing these problems and undertaking this reformation all by himself, because he makes the same prayer in this 13th chapter three times, verse 14, 22, and 31 all say the same thing. This is what it says. He says, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So three different times he pauses and records that prayer, which I think is fairly indicative of a person that is really alone. He's uncertain as to whether it's going to make a difference or not. And he's just saying, I hope you don't forget what I tried to do. So he doesn't know if it's right, he doesn't know if it's gonna last, and this is the way the book ends. It's really ironic, I think, in many, many ways. Now, there's four, when you look at this 13th chapter, in this final chapter, there's four restorative initiatives that are undertaken by Nehemiah himself. The first is restoring the general integrity of the people, the people had lost their integrity. The second is restoring the general integrity of the temple. The temple had been compromised. Third, he's restoring the support for the temple. They had quit giving and therefore all the support in the temple, all those workers went back into their own fields because they were starving. And the fourth thing is restoring the obedience for the people in regard to the celebration of the Sabbath. They had completely denied that. And so this first point I think it's fairly easy to look at. It's the most significant, I believe. It's dealing with the restoration of the people and their general integrity. Now, after returning from his visit to Persia, I think this is the most significant action that he had to take. And I think that this is underscored and demonstrated to us that the chapter opens and closes with this description. The first three verses are talking about the fact that as soon as he comes back, he has, he has the people engage in a, re, a reading of the book of Moses was the Pentateuch, which was the first five books of, the, of your Bibles. And when those were read, it, it condemns the, these Ammonites and these um, Moabites that were participating in the assembly of God. They shouldn't have been there. And after they read the Pentateuch, it probably took several days to read it publicly. And after they've done, the people themselves undertake this to say they, they realize what they've done. And so now they're pushing back, and they're trying to bring this correction together with Nehemiah. Now, in verses 1 to 3, you, you have that this, this tumult beginning to rise. Now, at the end of the chapter, as I said, it, it goes back to the same issue in verses 23, 24 to 30, and they re- record Nehemiah's uprooting the same problem that plagued Israel 25, 26 years before this. See, in Ezra 10, Ezra, this was the main issue with Ezra, is this intermarriage problem. And so the people were intermingling. Now, some of the stuff that goes past the text that you might just be simply reading is that there's no explanation as to why these people engaged these marriages. You might just say, well, maybe just the foreign women were hot. You know, maybe that was it. We, we don't know for sure, but I think a very plausible argument is that it somehow was an indication that the people were intermarrying with some of the other people, even particularly the kings of the enemies of of Israel. They were intermarrying with their daughters to create these alliances so that if Israel came under attack, they wouldn't be alone, which is a deep-seated indictment on what they really believed about Hezekiah's leadership. See, they didn't want to be alone, and they didn't know if Hezekiah could really sustain the leadership that he had demonstrated for for more than a decade before. And this, this is really interesting tension when you begin to contemplate it because the people had really given themselves to this intermarriage to the point. It becomes so widespread that half the people, half the children from these marriages couldn't even speak Hebrew any longer. That tells you in those homes, even though their homes were in Jerusalem, in those homes they spoke the foreign language. They didn't speak Hebrew. And that tells you that there was this affinity towards these foreign nations. And it was so bad that the children couldn't speak Hebrew. And, and when Hezekiah figures this out, it's just he's just incensed. It, his action is both very swift and very intense when as he records what he said to them, he says, I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them and pulled out their hair and required them to take, to take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And so he just goes ballistic. He just completely loses it. That's the biggest issue. Of the four, this one towers over the other three. And so this is a deep-seated one. There's a compromise in it. Ezra had showed them, shown them earlier in Ezra 10. He showed them from Scripture that they ought not to be doing this. You have Nehemiah even recounting the fact that as great as Solomon was, these intermarriages destroyed his kingdom. And he does the best he can to fix it. That brings us to the second thing. The second thing is the restoring the general integrity of the temple itself. And Verses 4 and 5 describe this undertaking that Nehemiah had to engage in and this restoration of the integrity of the temple. Eliashib the priest had taken a large storage chamber in the temple and he prepared it as a residence, ironically, for Tobiah. Tobiah was an enemy of, of Nehemiah. And he actually set it up so Tobiah was living in this Storage room, large storage room. And not only did it displace the storage of the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and ties of grain, wine, and oil that were given to the support of the temple practices and those who served there, it was an incredible incredible defilement of the general integrity of the temple worship itself. You see, because Eliashib was associated with what was going on, it really caused the people to believe this is a sham. <laughs> this is just a complete sham. And I, I, I think it's pretty reasonable to understand how Nehemiah would have seen this as this tremendous affront. And the second part of that that account in verses eight and nine, they describe Nehemiah's intense reaction. Not only does he just go in and throw all of Tobias furniture out of the chamber he directs those in charge to cleanse the chamber and restore restore it to its intended use. And so he is like dictating to people what to do, and he's moving all these pieces. And so he first restores the general integrity of the people because of this intermarriage problem, and then he restores the general integrity of the temple, and then thirdly, he restores specifically the support to the temple. This is an interesting one, I think. Um, in verses 10 and 11 is where we see this. That In verse 10, it, it gives us some description of this third undertaking. And as soon as Nehemiah gets back, he, he has to restore this financial support to the Levites and the singers. The support had been so withheld for so long that the singers and the Levites who supported the priest... The priests were still in power. See, they were at the top of the pyramid. But the Levites and the singers weren't getting anything, and so they resorted to going, leaving the city and going back into their own fields to grow their own food to support themselves. And so for the most part, all the practices in the temple that those people were responsible for completely ceased. And so in verse 11, Nehemiah is shown, he records his reaction which included a confrontation of the officials and a gathering of the workers together. In other words, he had to send uh, emissaries or ambassadors out into all of those areas to draw these people in in order to restore them to their stations of service. Now, I don't know about you, but the, the text doesn't go into a lot of detail, but if I was one of those people that had been working in the temple and no longer could pay my bills, so I go back into my field in service so that I can just simply pay the bills of my family. I'd be very hesitant to forsake that and to go back into the temple. But that's what they did. And so there, there had to have been, I think, some assurance on, on Nehemiah's part that they were going to get paid, that they were going to be able to sustain their livelihood by going back into the temple, and that's what he did. So this, the third thing that he initiative that he had to take all by himself was this restoration of the support to the temple. And that brings us to the fourth one. This is the restoration of the obedience of the people, particularly in regard to the issue of the Sabbath. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of instruction about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a dedicated day of rest set aside one day out of seven, one day a week, and one year. Out of the Sabbath year was a whole year that you you weren't allowed to, to sow your fields. You had to trust that the year before would give you enough abundance that you'd be able to make it. That was an, a remarkable dependence on God. Now there's a lot of debate. One of my finest friends through my, the history of my own ministry um, is what they call a strict Sabbatarian. Now if you belonged in his church, he would actually bring you un, under some form of discipline for like going to a Broncos game on a Sunday by engaging in any activity or any work. And I, I think the only way to, to see that is to see in Colossians 2 and in Hebrews 4 that there is a movement of the Sabbath principle in the New Testament to arresting in what Jesus would do that final rest was something that was much greater than a one day and seven rest. And so there's a lot to this, and I don't obviously have the time to go through all of that right now, but what what you had is the this incredible compromise had reemerged in regard to this Sabbath practice. And, and so it, it, as he undertakes this, verse 15 describes a, a setting in which the activity in the city of Jerusalem on the Sabbath is pretty much business as usual. There's no distinction, there's no day of rest. And this might have been perhaps the most logistically challenging issue to overcome. Because not only are we do we see that the, the Jews living in Jerusalem were engaging in, in this and all the commerce and all the marketing and all of that was going on there, there, there were a lot of traders that were coming into the city the very same day. Now, when you get to the later description in verses 21, 20 and 21, it, record, it records this corrective measure that, that Nehemiah undertakes. And he, he gives them an initial warning, but he, it goes beyond that and he extends this warning to the merchant, merchants and the sellers that camped outside of the city. And so the day before the Sabbath or on the Sabbath, they had all of these, it was like a campsite just outside the city gate, and the Jews would open the gates that day, and they would march into the city and engage all this activity, and he goes to them and warns them, and his warning to them included physical harm and possible imprisonment in verse 21, and apparently those measures were enough because it says that they didn't do it anymore. There was some sort of a ferocity that, that was enough for them to be turned away saying this guy means business and they didn't come anymore. Now, as I said in the beginning, the, this isn't about his temper, I don't believe. His temper is recorded over and over again that, okay, a righteous person can actually be pretty pissed and even violent. I, I was talking again this morning with James. I think we've distempered the accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple to the point that we think he went in and said, hey, boys, don't be selling things in the temple. <laughs> but he said he made a whip. He made a whip. At some point, he was sitting down forming a whip, and somebody comes in and says, what are you doing? So it's like, what does it look like I'm doing? He goes into the temple, and he is ferocious. But we've made it this limp-wristed whisper-like. And I think it's the same ferocity. He said... This is a house of prayer. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. And that's what you see. But I don't think it's about that. To make this 13th chapter about that, I think, is to really miss it. Each Each of these initiatives had to be undertaken after a season of time where the people were doing so well. It was like... Finally, we're getting here. I can, you can just imagine him sitting around with the other leaders and talking about how well things are going. And four chapters are complete. They hardly mention Nehemiah at all. And now, all the wheels are falling off, and it's broken. And he's the one that has to assess, react, and bring the corrections to the problems. Nobody else has mentioned helping him. It's all him. Perhaps the question now becomes, what keeps what keeps a leader going? What, what causes a leader to not just throw his hands up and to say, well, this is on your own head. I'm out. I would venture to say that the best leaders that you know resisted that temptation over and over again. And you know they did. Perhaps some of what they had to deal with was you. Maybe it was a little insubordination or backbiting. It was a little bit of kind of innuendo and kind of feathering your own nest on the side because you were kind of covering your own bases. That was a redirect. Um, But in the end, they had to stick it out. But what kept them going? I want you to go back and listen to this final quote by Gerber. And he speculates about what keeps a leader going through the loneliness. And this is what he says. He says, He says the leader is always alone and being alone can be no fun. So what is it that sustains the leader through the loneliness? Is it guts, grit, determination, sheer stubbornness? Is it fear of failure? Is it the pot of gold waiting at the end of the rainbow? While these may play a part, none of them nor even the combination of all of them is nearly enough. It's got to be your own dream, vision, purpose, and mission. At L2, we talk a lot about you taking the gospel into your life. You actually living it out day to day. Which means a lot of you have to wean yourself off of convenient clusters of Christians that never challenge the way you talk. They support you when you feel bad. They support you when you're discouraged, when you don't really know what to do. Those are all nice. But to really engage our city the way we need to requires you not to abate all of that completely, but to wean yourself off its dependence. For now, you know how to engage those discussions. You anticipate them. You pray about them. You prepare for them. As Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, you're actually ready to give an account when someone asks. You see, this is the future of the church in America. We can't go back. We're never going to go back to the church I grew up in in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s where everybody comes together and holds hands. And I think that the unity that we thought we had was a facade anyway. We just weren't open enough. We just didn't have the integrity of some of you millennials to say, I have to be authentic. I don't believe this crap anymore. But you see, our country is divided. And the only way that we're going to be able to engage our neighbors is for us to care. It's for us to be alone. It's for us to be courageous. Now, I I don't know that I can agree any stronger with Gerber's article that there's none of the incentives of your neighbors throwing you a party or any of that that's going to get you going or keep you going. What's going to get you going is a dream, a vision, purpose, and a mission. And without those, you'll never be effective. If you're sitting here this morning realizing that, okay, we're, what, two-thirds of the way through the year, what were your, what were your, uh, what do they call those? Your resolutions for this year. Are you even close to where you thought you were? Is there any way you can make up ground before the year is over? Because it's gonna be over before you know it. You see, this is where we live. And the fact is, Christians don't like these difficult questions. We would rather retreat into our nice enclaves that always encourage us. They always support us. But you see, here's where Nehemiah ended his journey, standing alone. He knew what he needed to do, and he wasn't afraid to do it. The question, are you? Do you really have that kind of a mission, that kind of a purpose, that kind of a vision? Because if you don't, you probably aren't going to make much of a difference. All right, let me take a couple questions and we'll be done. Can Nehemiah's anger be compared to Jesus' anger when Jesus cleanses the temple? Um, That was probably texted in before I said that. Um, I'd say yeah. I'd say yeah. I think what Jesus did in that temple was far more violent than most of you realize. I think we've tamed him. And we've turned him into a white, blue-eyed Anglo-Saxon with feathered hair and a lot of product that barely speaks above a whisper. And that, that was not Jesus. That was not the Jesus of the Bible. And so, yeah, I think that those two go together pretty well. Next. God seems vengeful by not allowing foreigners in the temple in the beginning of, the cha- of chapter 13. How are things different today? Well. That's a great question because the, the movement or the progress of the covenant is a very interesting dynamic to follow through Scripture because it, it's established with a very, very small group of people. In fact, when people come in and try to demonstrate to me that God wants everyone saved, I usually try to make them prove that to me through the Old Testament. And they always say, well, I can't. I said, well, don't you find it strange that two-thirds of your Bible shows you that God's favor is on one little nation? And if you actually read into what was happening in the nation, according to Paul's account, fairly accurate, in 1 Corinthians 10, most of them died in disbelief. God didn't want everybody in the world saved. So now I've got a dilemma, which a lot of people create this second chance thing, which doesn't have any evidence in Scripture. And my point is that the covenant went from its locus. I think this went off. Um, its primary intent, it went from one nation into the whole world, expanded to the whole world. And that's where I think that you see some of the most dynamic change and shift in the New Testament, because, because if Satan, in Luke 10 and verse 18, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. In that chapter and the previous chapter is when Jesus is beginning to send out the 12 and the 72 with the power to overcome even demons. And that's when there is a breaking open of everything. And he now sends his disciples in the last, right before he sends into heaven, he sends them into all the world. That is corresponding, I think, with Revelation 20 where you have Satan actually bound and no longer can deceive the nations. And now you have a message of redemption that is not limited to one country, one people group. Now, the Jews had a terrible time swallowing that because they thought they were the favored people, and they were for a long time. But after the expansion in the New Testament, the New Covenant included everyone. And so it was the sending of the disciples of Jesus and the establishment of Jesus' church in the whole entire world. And so yeah, there's a huge expansion and things are very different today in the sense that this gospel has been sent into every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And it doesn't have the same ethnic national boundaries that, in definition it did in the Old Testament. I hope that's helpful. Do any of you have any questions about that? I covered a lot of information right there. Anybody else? Okay, last question. Why was it so bad to intermarry with other cultures? I understand cultural preservation and don't think that marriage for political gain is right, but why did the Bible condemn intercultural unions? I think my previous answer probably touched upon this. The preservation of national Israel was preeminent in the Old Testament. And God had warned them through the Book of Moses, and he warned them through the demonstration of Solomon and the destruction of the zenith of Israel's history, that his intermarriages with all the wives and the concubines he had ruined Solomon's reign. And so they had, they had the prohibition written in the Scripture, and then they had the example of Solomon in the, the, the plummeting of Israel into its demise its, and God's abandonment of them, quite honestly. And because of that, you had the nation of Israel very acutely aware that they had to preserve the integrity of their race. Now, like I said, the new covenant's not like that. And so for you to be able to say, well, we're Christians and nobody else belongs in this little circle, basically happens in a lot of churches. And then the the church's evangelism begins to sound like Red Rover, Red Rover, send Mark right over is that, okay, you guys are on the outside. If you want to join us, this is what you have to do, which is a lot like the Old Testament. It's not like the New Testament at all. And so there's a lot in that. That's a great question. But uh, most of that has to be answered in the progression between the Old Covenant and the New. Great question. All right, I hope that this was an immensely practical series for you that would cause you to see that even in the Old Testament, there is a remarkable insight to who we are as human beings. And I think this last chapter on the loneliness of leadership is remarkable. It should be helpful for all of you that are in positions of leadership. So let's pray and we're going to engage in our our time of communion and the finishing of our worship service together. Father, I would ask that these would be a few moments in which maybe we can reflect on different takeaways that we've had throughout this series. We've covered a lot of information. I can remember the the sermon that James did on the book of Esther and just how much you had gone before them to lay the foundation for all that would happen with Ezra's return and his rebels before him and then Nehemiah's after him. Um, And Father, I know that oftentimes we lose heart because we can't see you doing that. It's almost like we're we're taking stock of it all on on our own and and we're saying, well, Who are we to assume to be able to change a city? It seems like we're just a small band of people that like to sing certain kinds of songs and we like to read the Bible and we like to understand what you've told us. But can we really change a city? Can we really change our country? Father, I know we can because your people have done it through the history of the church. More in the history of the church than ever of anything that we see in the Old Testament. So I pray that you would help us to be acutely aware of the power that you have promised to be going before us, the power that actually opens the doors and paves the way for us to accomplish these burdens, these visions that you've given to us. Help us to do this. Father, the things that we're laying our hands to these days will be the very things that be the trees that bear the fruit in the future. Help us not to grow weary. Help us not to lose heart. Uh, We pray that during this communion this would be a special time in which you would visit each of us. You would help us to better understand how it is we've lived before you in our self-examination. You would help us to be able to judge ourselves rightly so you don't need to judge us. And so, Father, we commit these moments to you. We thank you for them. I pray your richest blessings upon these people that are here and even those that are watching online. I pray that you would Cause us to be your people once again. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can find more audio as
0: well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.